one of the things that's helpful for me when I start to understand the biology is that there's a corollary thought that often occurs for me, which goes like this. I am so fucked up. Can you believe that I do this? Can you believe that even I, oh, namaste, Jerry, oh, wakes up at three o'clock in the morning worried? And when I hear you describe this, what shifts for me is I laughingly and almost with tears say, oh, I'm just a human being doing what I was wired to do millennia ago. Because in my experience, this is one of the confounding problems in our modern society is that we think that because we are subject to craving, to clinging, to addiction, to the need for dopamine hits, to, to this anxiety, that we're broken. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt. Have you ever had a moment where you were completely and totally overwhelmed, out of control, spiraling with anxiety, fear, terror? I've had a lot of those moments, but I would say that I had more than I've ever had last year. And perhaps someday I'll I'll talk about it more deeply on a podcast. But I'll just say that for a lot of reasons, I was really sure I was dying last year. I was stuck in this horrific, anxiety-driven loop. And it kind of went like this. Oh my God, what's that feeling? Oh my God, I'm going to die. I need to do something about it. I need to see all these doctors. I need to Google. I need to do whatever I can. I need to take control of the situation. I try to take control. I can't fix it. Oh my God, that means there is something. I'm going to die. And it seemed like I couldn't do anything except go deeper into this belief. Despite everything that was being shared with me, despite everything the doctor said, despite everything my wife shared with me, I was convinced that the fear meant it was true. The worse it felt, the more true it was. And I don't know that I'm fully released from it, but what I do know that started to give me some freedom from that spiral is to see those are just my thoughts. That's just my brain. And even though it feels real, it isn't. This conversation that we're sharing with you today would have been incredibly helpful for me last year, and it's helpful for me now. It's between Jerry and Judson Brewer. And Judson's really an amazing guy to listen to. He's the director of research at the University of Mass Medical School for Mindfulness. And Jerry and Judson talk about how people can get stuck in these loops like I was and how ancient wiring can really feed and drive our behaviors. But there's hope. There's a way to work with this. There's a way that gives us more choice. And it starts with mindfulness. And it gives you an opportunity to actually rewire your brain and give you a little more choice in your life. So enjoy this amazing conversation between Judson Brewer and Jerry. Reboot Your Year is our invitation for you to pause and honor the transition into the new year. This simple yet powerful free five-day course will guide you through the annual transition with grace and open you to the promise and hope for the year ahead. The course unfolds through daily emails, each with a cone to consider and a guided journaling practice handcrafted by the Reboot team. Each practice takes less than 20 minutes to complete. We'll help you enjoy this course so much, you'll make it part of your annual practice and even share it with teammates and colleagues. Learn how to reboot your 2018 at RebootYourYear.com. Hey Judd, it's great to see you again and I'm super excited to have you on the show. Before we get started, could you take a minute and just introduce yourself? I'd be happy to, and it's great to see you as well. My name is Judson Brewer. I'm the director of research here at the University of Massachusetts Medical School Center for Mindfulness. 
I'm also the founder of Claritas Mind Sciences, where we take evidence-based digital therapeutics uh, and apply those to behavior change. So helping people change concrete behaviors such as quitting smoking, uh, reduce emotional eating, and even uh, unwind their anxiety. Oh, and that's one of the pieces that we'll be jumping in on. And I just, you know, I think it's worth saying that we've known each other for a couple of years, but really haven't spent, in my feeling, in my view, enough time together. Because every time we spend time together, I just feel like we have a blast. So, um, yes. You better say yes to that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm smiling because I was just thinking of the last walk we took together. It was fabulous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you were in, in town giving a talk at uh, Naropa University where I'm a, a board member. And I convinced you to go for a walk here in Boulder as I subtly or not so subtly tried to sell you on the wonders of living here in Boulder. <laughs> so, but I remember that walk well, and it was really out of that walk that the idea of getting on the podcast, I think, uh, came out of that. And if I re- recall correctly, it came after the talk you had done. And, and, and this was really a talk, if I, could, if I could go out there, that's built around your book called, um, it's called Craving. Is that correct? The craving mind. The craving yes. mind. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and why don't you just very briefly just touch in on what that talk was about so that we have a little bit of context. It was uh, basically the last 20 years of my uh, research and practice uh, mm-hmm. and clinical work kind of brought together, uh, which is also very much how the book came together, where I've been really blown away by uh, – Understanding how the mind works uh, from a clinical perspective uh, as, as an addiction psychiatrist, but also blown away by the work that my lab's been doing in, in lining up and understanding these mechanisms more and more. And most importantly, how all of that has kind of come together with my personal understanding of how the mind works through my own meditation practice. So, you know, just just to uh, to tease it out a little bit, um, I've had Vince Horn on the podcast and he's been a longtime friend. But I think more than Vince, you are the definition of Buddhist geek. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm joking, but but I, I think the thing to, to understand is that we're going to have a conversation, if you will, about the neurobiology of what's actually going on, whether it's with addiction to substances, if you will, or addiction to mental states, and really what happens um, in the experiences around things like anxiety, and maybe, if we can even touch upon it, guilt. So how does that, and, and the notion is that I was really intrigued by your descriptions of the, of the way the mind works. So. Uh, this may be an impossibility, but we're going to attempt to do it. If you could give us like a couple of minute summary of that talk and more specifically the role of, uh, I'm forgetting the full name of it, but the PCC structure in the brain. Mm-hmm. So let, let, let's see if we can take a stab at it that way. Great. And interrupt me at any time for clarification, because I so I'll try to keep this really, really brief. Basically, um, there's you know, there we look for behavioral mechanisms. We look for neurobiologic mechanisms and we look for to see how those two overlap. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we can roll up our sleeves and, and really dive in here. Behaviorally, it looks like one of the most evolutionarily conserved parts of our brain is this process called reward-based learning, where, which was basically set up so we'd remember where food is. So you need certain elements uh, that are necessary, possibly sufficient, uh, where we need a trigger. So you see some food, and then you need a behavior. You eat the food, and then your, um, your body sends this dopamine signal into your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. We call this context-dependent memory. And this gets laid down so we remember where food is. This gets laid down so we remember where danger is so we can avoid it in the future. And you can think of this as the approach, uh, avoid you know, uh, behavior, uh, even from a binary system. You know, we're going we're gonna to go toward things that are nourishing or help, survive, help us survive, and we're going to move away from things that are uh, more likely to get us killed. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to jump in there. So what yeah. you're basically describing is a very, very primitive 
and if you if you will, a pre-evolutionary biological structure that was designed to keep us alive as a species. Move towards things that fed us emotionally, physically, whatever whatever is going on, and move away from things that might kill us. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. So Eric Kendall actually got the Nobel Prize for this, I think, in 2001, showing that this is evolutionary, evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug, which only has 20,000 neurons. So they've mapped basically every single neuron in that sea slug, and it does it approaches nutrients and it moves away from toxin. So from from a Buddhist perspective, from a from a philosophical perspective, or even a Western psychology perspective. This basic mechanism, which defines us as human beings, really, uh, if you will, is the basis of, uh, of our whole mind structure. I'm going to move towards something that, that, that feeds me, and I'm going to move away from something that threatens me. This is where it gets super interesting because this applies to everything from – you know, becoming identified with a certain behavior to some even some people's description of ego. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay. It gets really interesting. So let's let's move to the next level of that because because I think that that you started to describe the behavioral structures and that's what we've sort of got a very very surface level analysis of that. And then give me an understanding of the neurobiology of that. Yeah. So let, I'm going to do one level up and then we'll go Perfect. to the neurobiology to link those. So the next level up is where we bring in emotions and we bring in, bring in a sense of self. So with this stru- structure in place, our brains, you know, in modern day where most of us uh, in, in modern day have enough to eat, this, the structure is still in place. And so our brain starts learning, oh, you know, maybe I can eat food when I'm stressed out or eat food when I'm sad or when I'm depressed and I'll feel better because I get that dopamine hit. So we start to learn emotionally driven eating behavior as an example when we're not actually – that's not actually going to help us survive. It actually gets in the way of survival when we get diabetes or obesity or whatnot. So that's the next level where this, this process is still in place, yet we learn to associate certain behaviors, whether it's eating uh, – and we'll dive into anxiety later because that, that's a little more complex – whether it's anxiety, whether it's smoking, whether it's you know uh, yelling at people when we get caught off in traffic, all of these start to become learned behaviors in very much the same way as the sea slug learns to approach nutrient and avoid danger. So, so, so the reward though is we, in effect, quote, feel better. Yes, and we feel better by, among other things, getting that hit of dopamine. Yes. Yes. So, so I may eat and I feel better from dopamine. Or, and now we're starting to get into our, the realm of our podcast listeners, I may check my email, I may check Facebook, and all of a sudden get a, hit, a dopamine hit. Yes. Even though it's actually maybe working against the survival of the, the state that I'm in. Am I seeing yeah. that right? Yeah, let's concretize that. So I think about a meeting that I need to prepare for, and I, I'm like, oh, no, I don't know if I'm going to do a good job. That feels bad. Our brain says, hey, just go check Facebook or check your email one more time as a way to distract yourself. That distracting behavior gives us that reward of distraction because we're now moving away from that unpleasant emotion. Gotcha. And then that cycle repeats itself. So just like the sea slug moves away from something that is threatening and towards something that feels good, we're doing the same thing. We're acting like a sea slug at that level. We are. Gotcha. Okay. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) So I'm going to bring in next level, which is where the ancient Buddhist psychologist had something interesting to say, and then we'll link that to the brain. Uh, so the Buddhist psychologists had this uh, term that they called dependent origination, which is basically where they explained this process, which is called operant conditioning, positive and negative reinforcement, reward-based learning. All of these terms in modern day, you know, Eric, uh, Eric Kendall gets the Nobel Prize. B.F. Skinner becomes famous for his Skinner box, which is basically the approach avoid behavior thing. The Buddhists described this before paper was even invented. <laughs> so I'm just going to give a shout out because they didn't torture animals or graduate students or use complex <laughs> algorithms to write their theses. They just sat down and looked at their internal experience. I'm just going to give a shout out to them. Uh, amazing. Uh, right. uh, you know, 
the Buddha was actually described by a, a famous teacher as a super scientist. <laughs> right, 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 right. So this process of dependent origination, they basically describe the same thing. We actually published a paper in a scientific journal about the links between operant conditioning and, and dependent origination. The terminology that they used was – they used a lot of very similar terminology. So craving, clinging. We're going to come back to the clinging in a second. But then they described you know, we crave for something, we hold on to it, and then we become identified with it. So they described this as the birth of a self-identity around a certain behavior. So this is where the ego comes in. So mm -hmm. if I eat cupcakes when I'm stressed out, I start learning and identifying with that behavior. Oh, when I'm stressed out, I sh I'm the guy that eats cupcakes or chocolate or drinks a beer or you know goes and checks my Facebook. That identity becomes reified every time we repeat that process. So in modern day, we actually call that subjective bias where we become biased because we're seeing the world through the way that we've seen the world in our previous behavior. Oh, I should eat cupcakes when I'm stressed out, for example. Or I'm, I'm the guy that goes and checks Facebook. Or I'm the guy that goes and loses my shit in the boardroom um, because that's what I do as a CEO or whatever. And it's worked – it quote-unquote worked before <laughs> mm -hmm. as in I didn't get fired. <laughs> right, right. So, so I want to play it back and make sure I've got it. So there's this – multi-step process, which is I, I move away from something that is threatening or something that, that uh, I don't like, that is unpleasant. I move towards something that is pleasant, pleasant being defined as reward. Yeah. Um, and that cycle continues to the point where I begin to identify my own sense of self with that cycle. So it might be something like, I'm the guy who loses his shit when uh, deadlines are not met. Mm -hmm. I'm the person who, uh, I, who, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, right? Whatever that word happens to mean for me. And so I'm the person who acts this way rather than, um, defining myself independent of my actions. I become associated with those actions and therefore associated with all the behaviors of those actions. Yep. Yep. Okay. And these can be – these are far-reaching. So it could be as simple as I suddenly found a company and I put on the business card founder and CEO. And every time somebody says, oh, you founded this company and I get this little puff up in my, you know, in my chest, there's that reward. That's and then the I dopamine start, hit. Yeah. And I start to identify with, oh, I'm the CEO. I'm the I'm the guy. I'm the man, you know. And then when somebody says, Well, you're not that great of a CEO, right. <laughs> that's when the trouble begins. Right. Or as uh, uh, Robert Persig wrote, I think, in his book, The Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, he said that first hint of egotism was the beginning of all his troubles. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But yes. that's about becoming identified with something. And we can actually experience what that feels like. And we can calibrate our system to experience that. So let's take a moment to calibrate that experientially, and then we'll talk about how that fits with biology. Great. Okay? So if I say to you, uh, Jerry, I think Reboot IO is a stupid name for a company. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so you might, I know that you're a pretty chill guy. <laughs> Let's say that Oh, you don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say that you were very identified with that name and you yeah. had taken years to come up with the perfect name for the perfect company. And then I come in and say that's stupid. What's that feel like? Does that feel expanding or does that feel contracting? Oh, it's an attack. It's it uh, you know, I mean, I I I I was joking when you said fuck when I said fuck you, but I wasn't really because I often identify with a character I call the Hulk who lives inside of me to defend against the feeling that you provoked in that instant. Okay. So you didn't rip off your t-shirt at that moment and jump through the screen to ring, ring my neck, but I get what you're saying. That I might have. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that contraction, that attack is perfect because mm. from a survival perspective – Fear causes us to contract, contract down into the smallest ball possible mm -hmm. and to protect our vital organs, mm -hmm. right? So whatever's attacking us isn't going to rip our guts out literally mm -hmm. from a survival standpoint. Emotionally, 
it's the same thing. We mm-hmm. contract down and we say, oh, I'm being attacked. I'm going to protect myself. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's one end of the spectrum. We've just calibrated that. Now, tell me what it feels like when somebody has just spontaneously been very generous to you. They've just something done something really kind that you just totally didn't expect and you just realized it. Uh, Does it feel like no, no, it's light and airy. It's like I can almost feel like my body has been filled up with air and like I'm floating. Great, great. So if we just uh, concretize this and said there's contraction, so the opposite of contraction is expansion, mm-hmm. would you say that light and airy feeling fits in the contraction or the expansion category? Oh, sure. I mean, it's all of a sudden I'm, I'm just, you know, so wide open, I can sort of hold the whole world inside me. Great. So you're so wide open there. Let's go back to the other one when we're contracted around some identification with something like my company or Mm -hmm. my company's name or whatever. That literally may be the experience, what we think of as an experiential self, Mm -hmm. because it defines the boundary between myself and the rest of the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I can feel that. That's me being affronted, being attacked, okay? Now, when you get light and airy and expansive, if you take that expansion all the way to infinity... I disappear. Yes, I disappear. So there's a not only a disappearance and, of the and, self... And, and I, don't want to be, I want to be clear. I disappear in a way that actually feels great. Yes. It's kind of oceanic, if you will. It's that, it's that feeling of like, it doesn't actually matter. And when that gets strong enough, there's not even an I in there worrying about That's anything right. or thinking about this. This is where this connectedness is so strong. This is what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi described as flow, mm. right? It's selfless, 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 mm. effortless, timeless, and immensely joyful. This is things that extreme athletes will literally risk their lives to find. Mm. And it's interesting. We can talk about that later. You know, that life-daring thing – if we're given a choice between survival and thinking or worrying about survival, <laughs> we're going to just go to survival. And so that ego goes offline and boom, we're in flow. Mm-hmm. Most, you know, Or that's one way that extreme athletes have gotten into flow. And mm-hmm. as Stephen Kotler has written about this in some of his books and whatnot, we've even captured this in our, in our fMRI scanner. So let's get into the neurobiology. There's a brain region called the posterior cingulate cortex – so I'll say that slower again. Post, <laughs> posterior cingulate cortex. Cortex, yes. Yeah. Post, posterior cingulate cortex. So this brain region is very interesting because Mark Rakel at Washington University in St. Louis, it was actually – this was discovered when I was doing my MD-PhD program there. I, a little uh, beneath to me because I was doing immunologic research and he was doing neurobiology and, and neuroimaging. He found this uh, – what's called the default mode network, and the posterior cingulate cortex or the PCC, we'll call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets activated when we're not doing anything in particular. He actually serendipitously discovered this because it turns out when we're laying still and not doing anything particular, guess who we're thinking about? Me. I'll give you a <laughs> <laughs> The most important topic in the world. Yeah. Me. <laughs> And these two, there are two main hubs of this, the medial prefrontal cortex, which is probably more involved in the conceptual self. Like mm-hmm. I wake up in the morning and I remember my name and I remember that I have to go to work and I remember where work is and all those things. And then there's the experiential self, which is the PCC, which is this contraction that says, oh, yes, that's me. And this gets activated during a number of different types of tasks. So for example, when we're thinking about ourselves, it gets activated. When we're feeling guilty, it gets mm-hmm. activated. Mm-hmm. When we're emotional uh, about things, when we're um, ruminating about things, when we're anxious, we're, it gets activated. When we're craving uh, a number of different substances, it gets activated. So this brain region uh, seems to be activated literally when we're contracting down around something. And we've done a bunch of neurophenomenologic experiments, which is a big word for saying we're linking up people's subjective experience with their brain activity in real time using fMRI and EEG. We can go into the details later if it's helpful. But basically, we can link up somebody's experience of getting contracted with their brain activity. And that's helped us map this brain region. 
as getting activated when we're contracted and getting deactivated when we're in a meditative state or even in flow. We've had a couple of folks spontaneously report getting into flow in the scanner. We get a snapshot through our neuroimaging techniques, and we're seeing, lo and behold, the posterior cingulate gets really quiet when somebody's out of their own way. Mm-hmm. So I think of this brain region as a neural marker of the experiential self when we're getting when we're being affronted, when we're being attacked, it's saying, this is me and I don't like this. So let me, let, let me describe something. Um, myself and, and, and probably every coach and every therapist in the country deals with clients who say, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning and I couldn't go back to sleep. I just, my head was just spinning. My mind was just spinning. I was just thinking about I was ruminating about what had happened the night before and the argument I had with the significant other in my life, or I was worried about the future, or I was worried about the day in front of me. Um, and then there, we all encounter people who, for whom that never stops, mm-hmm. except perhaps when they're in the deepest REM sleep, but maybe not even that. And what, so what I'm hearing you say is those clients – those people who are listening to this podcast right now who are waking up at three o'clock in the morning and, and trying to answer email or going to answer email, their PCC is completely activated at that moment. Um, they are as far removed from the flow state, from a meditative state as they can be. And when they're reaching for their phone next to their bed, they're in effect seeking relief from that state. They're moving away from sea slug like they're moving away from pain, if you will, in trying to find their way to a place of calm that's not threatening. Do I yes. have that right? At that point, when we that swipe is like a rat pressing a lever. Every time we write answer one more email saying, okay, I got one more email out of my inbox and get that temporary relief, we're rewarding that process. We're reinforcing it. Well, yep. so, so, but, but, but the, I, I want to break it down before the reward because the, the reward is reinforcing the need to reach for the phone. Um, but, but what I hear you saying is that if, if, if in that moment you were able to magically transport one of my clients from their bedroom at 3 o'clock in the morning to an fMRI scanner, you, mm-hmm. We would see their PCC completely activated. Yeah, lighting up like a Christmas tree. Right, right. Because in that moment, anxiety, guilt, rumination, um, we'll talk about depression later because I know that that involves other aspects of the brain and there are other circuits of the brain. But, but that heightened energetic state of just super contraction, if you will. Yeah. The PCC is lit up like a Christmas tree. Yes. Yeah. It. And it, experientially, we feel that as contraction. There's a level of restlessness that says, do something. This is terrible. <laughs> right. Get, get, and, and, and physiologically, our breathing shifts, mm-hmm. um, our stomach may shift, um, our, our other systems may start to shut down. Because I'm imagining, just like in, in the fight or flight state, the body's starting to preserve whatever vital organs it can to stay alive. Am I getting that? Yeah. And anybody that's listening to this, that's identifying with, oh, no, that's me, they can just check in with their breath right now to see if they're breathing shallowly. Right. Just by listening to us, they may yes. have been put into that state. Yes. Right. So let's all take a breath. <sighs> <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. 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 Wow. You know, Judd, I got to tell you, um, one of the things that's helpful for me when I start to understand the biology is that there's a corollary thought that often occurs for me, which goes like this. I am so fucked up. Can you believe that I do this? Can you believe that even I, oh, namaste, Jerry, oh, wakes up at three o'clock in the morning worried. 
And when I hear you describe this, what shifts for me is I laughingly and almost with tears say, oh, I'm just a human being Mm. doing what I was wired to do Mm. millennia ago. Because in my experience, this is one of the confounding problems in our modern society is that we think that because we are subject to craving, to clinging, to addiction, to the need for dopamine hits, to, to this anxiety, that we're broken. Yeah. And that somehow it's the same crazy reification, right? Because if I'm broken, now I have something new to worry about. Yeah. Yep. The I'm broken is just a habit loop. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, Alan Watts, uh, this philosopher that many folks may know, I I think he said it this way. He said, the ego... Uh, that which he believes himself to be is nothing but a pattern of habits. Mm-hmm. And so that I'm broken identification is nothing but a pattern of habits that gets set up and reinforced. Every time we think I'm broken, oh no, that actually gets reinforced. I think – tell me if this is something that you're you're getting to, which is – just seeing that we are identified in that moment mm. of noticing we're all we've already let go a little bit yeah yeah well as 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 we're as we're going to this place i started thinking back to that wild pre-paper super scientist the buddha who was able to begin to just step out of the pattern a reification of move the sea slug like state, right? Move away from that, which is threatening, move towards that, which is rewarding only to sort of get caught in another cycle, another loop of mind biologically compelled to do so that says I'm broken. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that he was able to sort of take a step back and see the whole cycle. Just see it. Yeah. Right? Because I find, too, that even bringing my own attention to the fact that I see I'm broken as a pattern can, if I'm not careful, create another pattern of, look at how broken I am. I see the fact that I'm broken, and I get trapped in that loop. And, yep. it's, and and like we fall into an Escher painting, right? It's like fractal view. patterns. It's yeah. like fractal patterns, exactly. It, it, and it's that identification. So seeing the identification is so powerful. So I, one of my clinic patients who was very anxious, mm-hmm. she we she came up with a mantra to help her identify when she was identified. Mm. And she used – it was so gentle and sweet and also uh, kind of playful. She said, oh, that's just my brain. Yeah. And that helped her remind herself that this was just a habit pattern that was set up for her by her brain for survival. Mm. It wasn't her. Mm. And when she would say that, oh, that's just my brain, she would snap out of it. I mean, obviously, she had to train herself to do this, but over time, she was able to just have that pop up and say, oh, that's just my brain. Mm. That's just my brain again, and be able to step out of that habit loop. I, I, I want to share with you uh, uh, something that, that occurred to me when I was in college. I was a philosophy minor in college. I was an English major. And uh, I remember reading Descartes and getting really fucking pissed. And not really understanding. And, and I, again, I had a very surface-level understanding of Descartes. But the whole construct of I think, therefore I am, which I understand, meaning I'm creating my own reality. 
became a, a trap for me. And, and, and what, what freed me from it momentarily, temporarily, was the belief that I am, therefore I think. Mm-hmm. Right? I exist outside of these habits of mind. Yes. And because I exist outside of these habits of mind, the habits of mind are not me. Right. <laughs> right. So we might even amend his statement. I think, therefore, I am identified. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about our clients, your client, my client. Um, You you mentioned athletes and extreme athletes. And what pops into my mind is uh, are, you know, in a sense – the entrepreneurs that Reboot works with are in effect the equivalent of extreme athletes when it comes to like we, we just like all of us have some form of body movement and we're on a spectrum of athleticism. Um, all of us have some sort of existential relationship with external identification around work, around some sort of thing that I do outside. And so we have extreme athletes and we have extreme athletes who happen to be creating and founding companies, Mm -hmm. right? So tell me about what's happening for these athletes. What's happening for that extreme state? And it's really the extreme, I think, that we're talking about here. Yes. And and that extreme is the far end of a spectrum where, you know, there's a continuum of learning uh, that's set up for all of us. So I've been I've been doing some work with the U.S. Olympic Committee. Uh, they have a, a coach leadership training program, and it's been really interesting. <laughs> I'm laughing because this shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, mm. but extreme athletes or Olympic level athletes get anxious, <laughs> shock, <laughs> and you know a lot of these folks. It's really hard to differentiate them physically, and so what's going to win? A, uh, a medal is the mental athletics. And I think that's one reason – that's one, certainly one reason that I watch the Olympics. It's so interesting to see who's going to nail it and who's going to choke because you just don't know. You know, athletically, there is perfect – you know, is perfect specimens, yet something's going to differentiate somebody from somebody else. And if you think of all the different sports, I mean diving and it's just like it's this mental game that differentiates everything. Mm-hmm. And that mental game is the same, whether you're a CEO, you, whether you're in the C-suite, or whether you're on the shooting range or you know on the downhill course. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the piece that's really fascinating to me. Well, what 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 is happening for that athlete? So we were talking about the identification. Um, and and the the linkage of sense of self with some sort of external achievement. Right. And so some, some sort of external condition. So that yeah. for, for an Olympic athlete, it, it boils down to I'm spending my entire life going for something outside of myself, which is a gold medal. And I don't want to uh, generalize and say all Olympic athletes are like that. Uh, but there, <laughs> that medal is pretty seductive. Let's just put it that way. Like I want to. I want to perform at the top level. And it's not just the bronze medal. <laughs> it's the gold medal, mm-hmm. right? And for some, bronze might be good enough. For others, it's, they've got to go for gold. You know, that's where that saying comes from. Mm-hmm. And so devoting one's entire life to something that can come down to literally milliseconds and in many times chance, you know, the – the um, the conditions of the race course are going to be might be slightly off for one person versus another, so there's the, there's this whole piece that builds up whether it's you know performing to make the team to even make the team right and wondering oh am I going to make the team am I going to get this right am I going to get this run right am I going to nail this and all of those pieces of that am I am I am I that's that anxiety that just gets in the way of performance. And that's no different whether you're in the C-suite or you're on the bobsled track. So now I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot because I also know that, among other things, you've also tried to 
found a company or you founded a company and you were in that C-suite spot as a co-founder. Am I getting that right? Am I remembering correctly? Yeah, I founded a, a Claritas Mind Sciences back in 2012. It's it's still uh, still alive, kicking and, and growing. Uh, but I am not I'm not in the C-suite level. But you used to be. If I, is that right? Yeah. So so when you speak about this, you're not just speaking some sort of theoretical space. You no. lived it. it yeah. Am I am I right about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I still do. Well, so what, what is that like for you? Now, you, you're, you're aware of the, the biological structures, but can you empathetically relate to this experience? 100%, which also makes it more effective for me to not only help people with this, but also develop programs and even uh, <laughs> work through my own stuff. So yeah. let's use a concrete example. Funding. Yes. Tell me about funding. So if I sit here and I can – and I, oh, no, am I going to get – am I going to get this next round of funding or not? Yeah. And I walk into that room wondering whether they're going <laughs> to give me funding. They're going to smell that fear right there, and, and fear does not smell good. <laughs> so what's happening in your PCC when that's happening? So if I get caught up in that, walk in the room thinking, oh, no, oh, no, my PCC is lighting up like a Christmas tree, I'm not going to perform well. I'm going to be taking their cues as threats as compared to their cues as you know opportunities, and I'm going to be closing down. You know, there, there are going to be a number of things going on. And so and, – and in that moment when you're putting yourself like the athlete on the edge or uh, – uh, like um, what comes to mind is my uh, uh, former client, Ben Saunders, who, you know, folks from may remember was on the podcast. Ben was a polar explorer. And he's actually, as we're speaking right now, back in Antarctica, solo, skiing from one edge of Antarctica to another, trying to complete a journey that a friend of his died on, okay, uh, raising money for the Endeavor Fund, which is a the British equivalent of uh, walking wounded. Um, he uh, he is literally alone on the ice. And Ben, if you can hear me, and maybe I'll send him a link to this podcast when it comes up. We love you, man. But as he spoke in his podcast conversation, he had this massive depression afterwards after spending, after his last trip where he and Tarker completed a journey there's this what's happening in that state when we are investing so much of our sense of self in, in your case, will they write a check? What's happening? I understand that the PCC is lit up, but yeah, what's the reward that's going on there? Yeah. So it's interesting uh, from a neurobiologic perspective, there are a couple of things that could be happening and they could be happening simultaneously. One is we become identified with certain mental states. Mm-hmm. So uh, there have been some there's, – there's a really beautiful study that basically showed that people who are depressed are more likely to prefer listening to music that makes them depressed or looking at pictures that make them depressed or even choosing strategies that make them more depressed as compared to strategies that help them move out of depression, which seems crazy. And so we really look at this to see where do we actually feel comfortable? And if we feel comfortable based on our previous experience, where are we uh, – what, what are we identified with? And so somebody that's depressed might be identified with that feeling of being depressed. So it's, it's, it's like coming home. It's familiar territory. Mm. Anxiety, same thing. So there's that quality of our experience where we could literally just be identified with a certain state. There are other things around uh, worry and rumination in particular where there's this intolerance of uncertainty. Mm. Uh, And there were some researchers that worked with, I think, people with generalized anxiety disorder in particular and found that they cannot tolerate uncertainty it's it, from everybody, you know, our brains are prediction machines. So they're looking to fix things into the future as much as possible. But at the far end of the spectrum, when we're anxious, that 
uncertainty becomes intolerable. And they even developed a scale called intolerance of uncertainty scale. So um, there's this this quality where worry starts getting in there and says, oh, but I'm going to fix this. I'm going to work on this. And by thinking about this, I might be coming up with a solution. Now, here's the kicker. Mm -hmm. Those solutions occasionally pop up. And then we start identifying, oh, because I worried, I came up with a solution, which may or may not be true. If we're worrying all the time and a solution pops up, it could be true to an unrelated. <laughs> okay, so so I want to repeat back what you said because I've been sitting here frantically writing notes. <clears throat> what I'm hearing you say is that uh, research has shown what I think experientially we have observed and noticed, mm-hmm. which is that neurologically, bioneurologically, we can become addicted, if you will, mm-hmm. to a mental state or a series of mental states. And these include anxiety, guilt, depression, being intolerant to uncertainty. I would, I would probably throw in being intolerant to change, which is a corollary to un- yep. intolerance for, for uncertainty, which is interesting because if we think about, we translate this back into team dynamics, right? What happens is we might bring in as our CTO someone who is uh, really successful because of their capacity to order chaos to bring a structure in place, which may be rooted in an intolerance to uncertainty. And so there's this constant reification going on within the system structure. Yes. That's really interesting. Yes. Right. Because everyone, one of the things I noticed, and I, I say this often on the podcast, is that Marvel taught us that every superpower has a positive side and a negative side. And so if we, if we put these structures and these patterns into the language of superpowers, right, I am addicted to anxiety. And so my capacity to move quickly towards anxiety management strategies can, in fact, fuel my externalized successes, mm-hmm. thus reifying and concretizing the experience that's going on. Spinning the loop. Yeah. Spinning the loop. And if so, if I'm understanding what you're saying, let's take a concrete example performance anxiety. Yes. If I get anxious before doing a big presentation or a big pitch, and then that pitch goes well, I learn, oh, I need to be anxious in order for this to go well. Right. And, and, and as I become more comfortable, i.e., complacent, I might up the ante to create more anxiety so I have that fuel. To perform well in my mind. Right. Because our brains habituate to circumstances. Yes. So that, so you made that observation. So I'm, I'm getting it. Now I'm, I'm making a connection to something else that goes on. And this is really dominant in the industries in which we hang out. What we often refer to as life hacking. Mm-hmm. Life hacking. I'm, I'm going to put, you know, organic Irish butter in my coffee and throw in some coconut oil for you know, to, to, to make it bulletproof, right? I, I joke about that. Uh, I actually enjoy bulletproof coffee. The, 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 but there's this notion that all these systems are knowable, tweakable, therefore hackable. Mm-hmm. And you're nodding because you, you're recognizing the behavior pattern here. But yeah. not only recognizing this, but this is the basis for all of our programs. We'll talk about right. that later. Right. Yes. I'm recognizing this absolutely. <laughs> right. And so I'm going to I'm going to hack in and I'm going to fix it and I'm going to tweak it. The challenge and I think this may be a difference between your programs and the generalized tendency towards life hacking mm-hmm. is when I try to hack and I actually don't really understand the system, yeah. I may in fact inadvertently reinforce the loops. Yes, it's like on being on the beach and our tires start to get stuck and so we floor it and then we just sink right, right down into the sand. Right. Because right. all we know is to hit the gas. Right, right. And 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 because
Plus, at a time in the past when I got stuck in the mud, I hit the gas and it got me out of the mud. So I'm yes. treating the sand the way I might treat the mud mm-hmm. or I might treat snow or something like that. Not recognizing that the conditions are fundamentally different. Yes. Right. So, and I think that this is important because a lot of folks listen, especially they listen to podcasts for those five tips to hack your way away from anxiety. So let's go there if we can. Yeah, because if I do those five tips, then I will not have anxiety. And if I don't do them, more anxiety. Right, right. Or what if they don't work? Right. So, so, so I'm imagining someone might be listening to this uh, conversation and at some point be saying to themselves, okay, okay, got it, guys. You guys keep yapping, yapping, yapping. What do I do? What do I do to, to, to break some of these cycles? What would you say, Jen? Well, this was really, really interesting. In particular, so we started our first program uh, was based on a study we did at, at my lab when I was at Yale where we were helping people quit smoking. And we taught them to paradoxically pay more attention. We said, go ahead and smoke. Mm. And we said, just pay attention when you smoke. Mm-hmm. And that was the typically they use smoking as a distraction, or they go on their smartphone when they're smoking and they're surfing the internet or whatever. So they're not actually paying attention. What they learn is that smoking actually tastes like shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've had people say, you know, I've been smoking 40 years and I never noticed this before. Wow. And that wow is that recognition where they're starting to hack the process. So they're seeing – this is reward-based learning, which means it's based on rewards. And they see that those rewards aren't as rewarding as they once thought they were. So okay, they're so, updating uh, their system. I'm going to interrupt you in this, in this way. I agree with you that, that you got them to start hacking the system, but they didn't hack the system in a way that reified the behavior. Oh, let's start there. Sorry, I'm going – Yeah, yeah, yeah. because, because I could have hacked the system by saying I'm going to snap a rubber band every time I want a cigarette, which starts to associate, quote, pain. But then all of a sudden the pain is like the stinky smell. It, in, it, it's also external behavior. So right. if we go to external – things outside of ourselves to make ourselves feel better, we're actually just perpetuating the process. That's my point. Okay. Yes. yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if we snap a rubber band or um, – Or slap you know, our face every time we want a cigarette. Right. Or say, hey, you know, Jerry, just walk next to me and every time I smoke, punch me in the face, okay? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so I need, I need Jerry to clone himself to come here and then punch me in the face every time. Well, eventually I learned to avoid him punching me in the face because it hurts. right. And that's been shown actually even with smoking studies where you know the aversive type stuff doesn't actually help people quit smoking that well. So you know, putting all the black lung on the cigarette packages may not – the science shows that that doesn't actually work that well. So th- – and why doesn't it work? Because it's just perpetuating the process. Our brain learns, oh, well, avoid that avoidance. So I'll know? pick up the pack of cigarettes and not see the black lung picture. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just stop seeing it. Right. right. Or I'll, I'll dodge Jerry's punch. Right. So, so get back to what, what you recommended, which was the kind of noticing, if you will. Yeah. So the first thing that we actually start with is helping people see this process mm. and help them map out their mind so that they can see that clearly. Because if they don't understand how the process works, they're never going to actually be able to change it. It's just like developing a cancer cure. We can't cure cancer without knowing the behavior, knowing the biological processes that are affected, that are mutated. And we take the same approach with behavior. If you don't understand the behavioral mechanisms, how the heck are you going to work with them? You might actually be feeding them. So that's mm-hmm. the, the rubber band snapping or whatnot. So this is where we look at, okay, reward-based learning is based on rewards. If I pay attention to this reward, I can simply ask, what do I get from this? And that's the question we have people use is co- to concretize this. Oh, when I smoke a cigarette, what does this taste like? What's that smoke feel like going into my lungs? Uh, the typical answer tastes like shit, burning, um, 
nasty. You know, it's it's just not good. And their brain starts to learn, oh, this is not that rewarding. And so that recalibration process starts to take place simply by doing nothing more than paying attention in that moment. So that's the first step. The next step is – there are probably like three steps here. But the next step is to see, well, okay, what's more rewarding? So if I'm curious – so for example, let's bring in a, a substitute behavior, mm-hmm. right? So if I substitute you know, going to exercise instead of uh, eating cupcakes, I then could become addicted to exercising because it just perpetuates the process. Well, what if we took that same trigger behavior reward? So let's say I'm anxious. My behavior, previous behavior was to distract myself and I feel a little bit better because I avoided that situation, realize that that doesn't work. Um, what if instead in that moment I get anxious and I get curious? Oh, what does anxiety feel like in my body? So you tell me this, anxiety contracting, what does curiosity feel like? Contracting? Yeah. Oh, it, it's much more expansive. In fact, yeah. I, I will give you a, a precise example of that from my own life. All right. I remember uh, a number of years ago, I was sitting down to meditate and I, I uh, was really in, a, uh, in the beginning of that session, I was just kind of opening and just beginning the process of noticing and just opening. When I got, I was overwhelmed by a sense of anxiety. And uh, the, the fear was just really, really powerful. And I, I heard, um, in my mind, I heard Pema Chodron's advice come in, which was, sit, stay, because I could feel my mind wanting to jump at understanding the, the thing that I was anxious about. And what I noticed before getting caught in that story was everything that I began to run through the list of the things that might be making me anxious was, in fact, making me more anxious. <laughs> so then I said, what does this anxiety smell like? Mm. Which was a really um, weird question that I could not answer. But it forced my mind to focus on my body. Mm-hmm. And I began searching. I began looking for the answer, if you will, in my body to what does the anxiety smell like? And within five minutes, the anxiety had completely passed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I got back to just sitting. Mm-hmm. I never forgot that experience. Yeah. And because later, I think in those moments where I wake up contracted, where I wake up, and lately I've been feeling a lot of that. Uh, the holidays are always hard for me. There are memories of people that I've lost at this time of year. And, you know, the setting sun is, you know, the, 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 the sun lower in the sky. It all, it all contributes to the feelings for me. And what I've been trying to do is just in those moments, literally say to myself, expand your chest. Mm-hmm. Just expand your chest. Now, I didn't know the neurobiology, but I bet you know what I'm doing <laughs> neurologically when I'm doing all those things. Is that right? Yeah. So when you say to yourself, just expand your chest, do you feel more expanded? I do. So there's the PCC correlate where that PCC is getting a little quieter. Mm. And that's the same thing that happens with curiosity. That's, that's why I'm a big fan of simply becoming curious because in that moment where we simply replace – and this is not an external behavior. So this is the critical piece here. We're not looking outside of ourselves to feel better. Right? We're not looking to check our Facebook or answer another email. That behavior simply becomes the noticing and being curious, bringing that attitude of curiosity to the moment. Oh, what does this feel like in my body? That curiosity leads to expansion or like you were doing, expand your chest. Oh, there's something internal that you can do that moves from kind of in your head, like trying to fix something to this embodied wisdom. Oh, that – Oh, literally mm-hmm. helps that brain rewire, but also t- 
teaches us something really critical. There's a different type of reward that's always available. So we move from a contracted, I have to get something in order to feel better, to an expanded curiosity right in that moment that's always available. Always available. It's, um, in a sense, the phrase that's occurring to me is the hacks that actually work. <laughs> you know, it, it's like, and, 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 and to, to go back to some relatively pedestrian questions that clients often have, which is, how do I stop worrying about my inbox? Well, there isn't necessarily, and there are some great tools out there. Sanebox is great and productivity tools. They're all great, but they're actually not going to get at the underlying anxiety that's driving the behavior. Right. right. It's amazing when you actually understand how the biology works, how these, these uh, would you say, hacks that actually work arise yeah. just out of simply knowing how they work. Oh, well, here's, here's the problem, and the solution naturally arises. This is actually what got me so interested in working with anxiety because, mm -hmm. you know, okay, great. We can get five times the quit rate for smoking cessation. Great. That's, that's good. I thought that was tough. Then we started working with emotional eating, 40% reduction in, in craving-related eating. Okay, that's good. Let's, let's tackle anxiety. And I was pretty – I was a little naive going in, let's say, maybe even a little hubristic thinking, okay, we can just do this. And two years later, it's like, wow, this is – look at all these different habit loops that come from anxiety because the distraction pieces are there. But then there's this underlying piece of worry thinking mm. that gets set up and, and just spins people out of control. It's like they, they start worrying as that behavior and the distraction or the feeling of being in control mm. starts to feel bad enough that it's as bad as the emotions that they're trying to avoid in the first place, whether consciously or subconsciously. So they go over that event horizon into the black hole. And then the worry thinking as the only behavior that they know just spirals out of control. Mm -hmm. Worry, 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 worry. No reward. Mm. And so what is the state of the app that you are working on? You're working on or, ha or have released something for anxiety. Is that right? We just did a soft launch of the – it's called Unwinding Anxiety. Um, that just through you know, unwindinganxiety.com if folks are interested in playing with it. And we're starting to collect data on it now. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've had people – I'm smiling because I never thought that this would get at people's underlying identification so much. So we've had people writing out full-blown panic attacks mm -hmm. uh, by simply bringing these awareness tools in. Mm -hmm. um, I had one person, one of our pilot testers saying, I feel like – Anxiety is deeply etched in my bones. That's how identified she was with her anxiety. And helping people see that identification and see that it is not them, that these are, as one person put it, these are physical sensations, not who I am. Mm -hmm. Or to quote your, your uh, client, this is just how the brain works. Yeah, this is just my brain. This is just my brain. <laughs> it's just my brain. Well, well, Jed, I want to thank you for this conversation. I know it was a little bit of a different podcast conversation for our listeners, but I hope that they enjoyed it as much as I did. It's, it's, uh, I think the work you're doing is incredibly important. And I think that uh, the degree to which those of us who are interested can make the links that we've made today and help people sort of literally just notice how their brain is working and create a little bit of relief around that so that they can get back to the thing that they want to do in the first place, which is in this, you know, in the case of Reboot, just go build your company. Just go, just go, just go try and build, just have that experiment called the company. And let's get some relief from feeling like it's, a, it's another cheater on the horizon out to eat now. Yeah. You know? Get out of the sea slug mentality. Yeah. You know, and hang out in the higher order thinking. And have fun. And have right? fun. And have fun. I love that you added that.
Yeah. <laughs> well, life would not be as fun without that, literally. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your taking the time, and I know folks are really going to enjoy it. Well, and thank you for the work that you do helping folks in this space because they really need you. So a deep bow to your work. I bow to you, my friend. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all three seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo. Being a CEO of a startup is hard. It can be very lonely, with long hours, constant demands, never-ending, unforgiving to-do lists. When do you take time to really step back and look at how things are going for your organization, for your team, for yourself? How are you showing up as a leader? This April, reboot and refresh what it means to be a CEO. In this retreat, you'll be led by the reboot team Jim Marsden, Heather Jassy, Andy Christinger, and me, to help you establish a greater awareness of your personal leadership habits. You'll create a customized strategy for being the leader you want to be, all while building a network of peers that you can rely on. To apply and learn more about Reboot's April CEO Founder Bootcamp, go to reboot.io slash bootcamp.